1: AuditBoard's integrated suite of easy-to-use audit, risk, and compliance solutions streamlines internal audit, SOX compliance, risk management, and security compliance. Automate processes and improve execution with AuditBoard's purpose-built solution, which is designed to address the most pressing challenges of today's practitioners. Experience the latest in audit, risk, and compliance technology. Visit AuditBoard.com to schedule your product walkthrough to see AuditBoard's award-winning platform in action today. Today on the show, we have Rosaria Salipo. She's the head of data science evangelism at Nime. Nime is a data analytics tool. It's what's considered low code or no code. So it's something that you don't have to have kind of that programmer background in to be able to use. So it's, it's really fantastic for people that are just starting off in data analytics. And so one of the things that we talk about with Rosaria is what is low code, no code? Uh, What are the benefits and are the benefits as good as it sounds? We also talk about machine learning in general and a use case for internal audit that Rosario walks us through. We also talk about the difference between the desktop version and the server version of NIME. A lot of analytics tools have a desktop version and a server version, and it's not always very clear on the website what the differences between those are. So we wanted to make sure to hit that specifically to NIME, but a lot of the concepts apply to other tools as well. And then two other things I want to mention, there will be links in the show notes for both of these. On Wednesday, February 23rd of 2022, NIME is hosting a uh, Data Connect North America, and so you can get in on that. If you're interested in NIME or within analytics in general, it's a really good resource. And then I also asked Rosaria for a good resource for learning data science. And so she offered a book called Guide to Intelligent Data Science for those that are interested. And so we'll also include links to that in the show notes. Here we go. What makes your brain happy?
0: Uh, of course, uh- When we talk about, you know, we are all data scientists, so when we talk about what makes uh, our brain happy is always a challenge. Um, So the nice thing in the the job is to be challenged, learn new things that works for everybody, but in my particular case, I also like to explain things. It's It's extremely rewarding when you explain something complicated and you see the person in front of you and the eyes are shining because she's totally or he's totally happy because, uh, you know, you explained the concept clearly and they got it. So it's uh, I have to say to break down things in a way that they are digestible for people. It's also a fantastic um, reward.
1: Well, then I think we have the perfect person to talk to us about machine learning then. Something that can seem pretty complicated, but um, I'm, I'm confident that you will be able to easily explain it to us. Okay. What song makes your brain happy?
0: Oh, the song. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, there are many, um, I mean, it's hard to, to, uh, to decide which song makes me, you know, relax and, uh, and think of something else, but I've decided I choose Strangers by the Kings.
1: All right. And I know, um, and working at nine, it'd be easy to, this answer when I ask you what's your favorite tool would be easy to go nine next question but <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly <laughs>
1: is, is there one outside of that and that could even be like a productivity tool or um, a piece of software or, or something
0: uh so I use the I of course I use mainly nine occasionally uh, I use python um mm-hmm. sometimes um yeah but I mean that my job is to Tell people the things that they can do with Nime. So of course, my uh, tool of choice is Nime. Uh, sometimes, so, so Nime has this thing that you can integrate with other tools. So, so it's not a closed tool. Uh, you can integrate with Python, with R, with JavaScript, with you know whatever tool you you want to use. Um, so occasionally, I do use Python for things that Nime cannot do. Um, so then I write a few lines of script, um, and then I integrate whatever is missing into Nime.
1: Perfect. And this next question, I usually ask it from the audit perspective, but we'll ask you from the data perspective. If you could grab every data person by the shoulders and shake them and say, "Please just do this one thing," what would that be?
0: Um. So one uh, one thing that uh, I always tell students I teach sometimes at university, so that I always tell students to um, to do is to start easy. Uh, It's always easier to complicate things. Um, So even for a model, if you want to to do, I don't know, time series prediction, for example, always start with the easiest. And then if it doesn't work, you can complicate it. It's much more complicated to do, to start with something super complex. I don't know, an LSTM architecture that takes forever to train. And then you realize that uh, a linear regression would have worked anyway, right? right? Uh, So, yeah, it it does. It does. Sometimes, I mean, the problems we have, they are not always complicated. Sometimes they are easy and traditional methods work the same as complex methods, as more advanced methods. So start easy and then complicate things. That's definitely something I would tell them. There is always time to complicate things. Uh, There is no time to simplify things if you have done a solution that requires too much time and too much effort and too much computational power and too much of everything.
1: Love that. Okay, and so we are talking machine learning, and, and we've talked about it a little bit on the show, and so we've had different um, descriptions of what that is. So uh, kind of a two-part question. One, what is machine learning? And then two, if you could walk us through the process at a, at a relatively high level. I know even, I mean, at the testing level, you could go, I mean, we could spend hours just talking about that. So at a relatively high level um what is it and then if you could walk us through a use case um i think that would be really helpful
0: okay so let's try let's see if i am correct improvising the explanation um so machine learning is a set of algorithms that uh, um, learn by themselves to modify the parameters of a model in a way to give you the most correct answer So that means that you need a model with the parameters to adjust, and you need something that measures how correct your answer is. So the optimization of this measure of the error with respect to the parameters of the model is what machine learning is. It's the whole automatization of defining the best rules, the best model uh, to perform your task all by yourself, all by itself, so all automatically. So this is in a nutshell what machine learning is. Uh, Machine learning is, I mean, it's uh, everything that learns by itself can be considered machine learning. But then, of course, they have different history. We start from uh, the the regressions, they come from statistics, while the neural networks, they are the machine learning. So they they come from the uh, machine learning community. Um, But I have to say, I consider all of these uh, training algorithms all as machine learning, because my definition is that they are able to train their own parameters to maximize or minimize the measure, whatever the measure is, the measure of success, the measure of error um, for the task. OK, so once you have this uh, um, this algorithm, whatever the algorithm is, uh, the more parameters you have, the more complicated the algorithm is. But once you have the algorithm, then it's the same. The, pr- the process is always the same. You collect the data. You clean the data. you transform the data in a way that the information is more evident, is more available, is less hidden. Uh, After you transform the data, you train the model. If the model, so then you apply the model, you measure, you calculate the famous measure of error or of success. Then if the measure uh, value is not adequate, then you start again. You change something in the data collection, or you change something in data preparation, or you change something in the model. You tweak some parameters, and then you start again until the whole whole, uh, um, measure of success becomes satisfactory. After that, once, uh, and this is the famous um, CRISP-DM cycle that uh, was used for many, many years in the past. Recently, this CRISP-DM cycle has evolved. And instead of being completely um, self-centered around the creation of the model, there is many um, uh, data scientists start to using start to use a double um, cycle, one for the creation of the model which mimics the crisp cycle, and one for the what happens after the model is being created. So during the crisp cycle, it used to happen you do what I have explained before. Once you accept the model, the model goes into deployment. And after deployment, it was a bit of a foggy situation. You don't know what happens. Yeah. really. So now you have these two cycles. One is the classic creation of the model, and then the second cycle is for the production. And for the production of the model, then you have, of course, the deployment. Then after the deployment, you need to do all the testing and a bunch of testing that are required for uh, the model to remain in production. You need to make it available uh, for the for the end users, be the end users, um, the uh, people. Uh, so for example, through a web application or being other applications, for example, through a web to a REST service. Um, and then after that, you. Periodically, you need to monitor the quality of the model. Uh, The data change, the world change, the data change, um, the model might not be adequate anymore. And when the model is not adequate, then you need to re-trigger the whole creation process, the whole model creation process, where you retrain the model again with new data, and so on, and it starts again. So this is the modern life cycle of a machine learning model. It changed from the one uh, single cycle as it was envisioned, I think it was at the end of the nineties with the the model. And then now it became a double cycle, including the creation on one side and then the monitoring in production on the other side.
1: Perfect. I think and I've, for, I um, yeah, no, that was great. And for those that um, are wondering, cause sometimes acronyms, or if they're wondering what that acronym is, it's CRISP, D-M, which is DM, kind of- a,
0: exactly. Yeah,
1: the, the classic uh, data analytics uh, kind of framework for, for doing data analytics.
0: Right, right. It was the, yeah, the, the project framework uh, for doing data analytics. Cross industry standard process for data mining. That's what it used to be, yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. And a question that I get a, a decent amount, regardless of whether it's with NIME or some other tool, is a desktop version and then a server version. And, and people say, well, what's the difference between the two? And so I think it'd be good for people to know specific, we can keep it specific to NIME, but generally what that what that means, I think would be helpful to the audience. Perfect.
0: So NIME um, is open source. Um, and it was born as the NIME analytics platform, which is the it's a software open source. You download, you install, and then you do all your data science tasks from data collection to data transformation, the model, the machine learning, the statistics, the testing, uh, all this stuff is available in NIME. There is no major and minor (coughs) version that you have to pay to get the real version. That's not like that. So the whole NIME analytics platform uh, is as the intelligence as the whole um, machine learning algorithms, all the data transformation operations, all the database. So all this stuff is available in there, open source and for free. Um, and then you have the server. The server is a bit, uh, uh, it gives you the IT infrastructure. So let's suppose that you are in a lab, uh, so you're not working alone. You're not a student working in your kitchen, but so it's, uh, you're in a lab. Then you need to work together with your colleagues, so you need a collaboration platform. You need a, a production uh, environment, a professional production environment. So to um, move your models uh, from from the development environment into the production environment, you need a monitoring environment. You remember I told you about the two circles, the two circles, right? Uh, The one circle is about the creation of the model. The other circle is about the productionization of the model. So the NIME server is the whole. Offers the whole IT infrastructure for the product productionization of the model. Um, so these all part for uh, monitoring, for retriggering, uh, for um, collaboration, uh, deployment. So all easy tools for these kind of operations. The machine learning is all in the NAM analytics platform, in the client, in the desktop.
1: Perfect. Thank you. Um, What are the, in internal audit, a lot of times we're assessing the risk of a given uh, process or or business function or whatever it may be. And with machine learning becoming pretty much everywhere, um, especially if an organization has an internal audit department, it's typically large enough that I would say today, most of those organizations have some kind of machine learning, whether they are developing it themselves or they have a product that is using it. And so, in thinking about it from that perspective, and okay, maybe internal audit isn't going to execute on the analysis, but we have this other department, maybe in IT or marketing or something, that's using machine learning, and we need to understand the risks associated with that. What are what's maybe the one or two biggest risks with someone developing uh, a machine learning model?
0: So there are many uh, pitfalls in developing a, mach- a machine mo- uh, machine learning model. Uh, I can tell you a few uh, that I painfully learned that uh, they were a problem.
1: <laughs> Pain is good. Let's hear. It. <laughs>
0: okay, so the um, a classic, uh, and this one I find every time I um, give an exercise to the students, uh, is to overestimate the model quality um, by mixing up the test set and the training set. This mm-hmm. is a classic. Somehow, for some reason, even so. Um, without realizing it, we mix the two uh, the two te- the two sets, so the training set and the test sets, and then of course we have a, an overestimation of the quality of the model. Then we start using the model, and it doesn't work. That's because we didn't have a clear um, measure of uh, what the models the model could do. Yeah.
1: Uh, real quick, for those that don't know, could you uh, help us understand the the testing set? Um, the training and- set. Yeah, 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 and and, kind of how that works and where that falls within the process.
0: So I said before that uh, machine learning methods are uh, algorithms that can learn by themselves to adjust the famous parameters of the model to optimize some kind of measure of error or success. So to measure this uh, this error or this success to calculate uh, this measure of error or success, we need to calculate it on a data set which is not the same data set that we used to train the parameters of the model. Um, the idea is that if the model has seen these examples during the training phase, the model is going to perform fantastically on this uh, data that it, it has seen in, during training.
1: Yeah, it's already seen on the, the opposite,
0: answer, yeah. It has seen it already, right? So right. I, I'll tell you an example later. So it, on the opposite, if I have new data, the model hasn't seen them before. It's supposed to generalize from what from the data that were available in the training set onto this new data in the test set. If the model is not able to generalize, the performance on this new data is going to be bad. So I mean, it's it's, it's not going to be fantastic. On the opposite, if the uh, the um, performance on the data and the training set were good. And the performance on, uh, on the data in the test set, they are not satisfactory. If I mix the two of them, I don't have this measure of the lack of generalization of the machine learning model onto new data. So that's why the two data sets had to be separated. Um, I, I said I can give you an example. So a classic example is if you don't have a lot of data, you have a data set which is not that big, and you use an over-dimension model, so a huge model with tons of parameters, um, it's easy for the model to go into over into uh, overfitting. So that means that it learns so well the data available in the training set that it just has to recognize those data. It cannot recognize anything that is slightly different. And that's why on the test set, it's not going to perform correctly, so, so sufficiently correctly. Um, for example, if I have a bunch of customers and uh, let's say, I don't know, a few hundred customers, so not, not that many, I use a model that is uh, uh, over-dimensioned for this particular problem. And let's suppose that all the customers are identified by a unique ID number. If my model goes into overfitting, it can learn the ID numbers associated with each one of the customers. So for example, my number is going to be 13, and it's going to associate to the number 13 some things that I do. If I move on to the test set, the number 13 is not going to be there. There is going to be a customer which is similar to me, but not exactly me. And if the model has learned to associate this ID, to whatever the model was supposed to do, is not going to perform well on the test set because the number 13 as an ID is not going to be there. There is going to be somebody similar to me, but not me. And so this is the um, why the, this uh, uh, strong separation between the training set and the test set is required. If there is a um, a commission of these two uh, data sets, then we talk about data leakage, and that's what brings you. Uh, uh, brings you to an over appreciation, an overestimation of the quality of the model, which is actually not there. So this is a classic problem. Uh, this happens all the time. It's usually d- due to inexperience, but this can happen all the time also because when you don't know the data collection process, um, it can happen that some things, for example, there are duplicates or things are recorded twice, and then even if you don't know it, it, it happens that uh, the duplicate ends up on the test set, and then you have. Again, one of the datas of the data from the training set right. somehow ended up in the test set, and that's of course it's a problem. The bigger the problem is, the the bigger the, your uh, overestimation of the model quality is.
1: Okay, yeah, that was great, uh, great example. And so that's one of the risks. I know you had a few more. What are what are some of the other risks that we need to take into consideration or pain points? Um,
0: Yeah. So another risk, I I am a a, a data geek. So I usually, uh, they call me once. So without, I don't have a specific domain expertise. So they call me when already, whatever it is, has been transformed into numbers. So I see numbers, I just apply whatever it's supposed to apply. And I I usually don't think much about the domain. And this is a mistake, of course, because yeah, all data geeks uh, (laughs) run this risk. That's a classic. and. as associated to this particular aptitude, there are two problems. The first problem is that we don't understand what we want to discover, and then we end up discovering what everybody already knows. So this is a classic. You spend a few days running an algorithm, and then you say, yo, you know that all the wives are actually women. This happened to me once. <laughs> so I said, it's true. And then they look at you, and they say, we did know that. Okay. Let's go to the next problem. Um, so this this, this is a classic, so that uh, we, we need to have a bit of a domain knowledge, or at least we need to work with somebody who has a domain knowledge, and that's where the collaboration <clears throat> is necessary. I cannot know all possible domains that's not possible, but I need to work with people who are uh, able to explain to me that what I'm finding is useless or what... Uh, uh, so they're able to explain to me what they actually want me to find yeah. um, in clear terms. Yeah. So this is another classic. So I would advise uh, the data scientists to always work with domain experts because yeah, the yeah. synergy is necessary.
1: And that's one of those things where you see on mm-hmm. like a job posting for a data science person or or even like a, a technical person, this um, quality of an effective communicator. And I would see that and I'd be like, I don't even know how you can measure that in an interview. And that's probably, I mean, yeah, that's, we put that out there because that's great, but is it really that important? And then you start to work with technical people or data people that aren't good communicators and you, you know, you go, okay, yeah, that's actually a really, really big deal. I think, I mean, for some folks, I mean, take a, you know, a poll of a thousand people um, and and who knows what the results will be, but I feel like for most that have that experience with the ineffective and the effective communicator um, and all the other qualities that are needed to do machine learning, analytics, et cetera. Communication is the one that usually pops its way to the top and you know, if you've experienced it, you know the importance of having an effective communicator that knows the data and can talk to the business uh, or the domain expert, as you put it, to understand yeah. really what the end goal is and, and as, as well as uh, other areas where effective communication is required.
0: Communication is is important. is uh, is at the basis of our job. I know that it doesn't sound like, but we need we. I don't know. I I hire people, um, and I do check that they can communicate well. It's it's impossible to work with people who can't communicate in what yeah. we do. As you say, we need to understand what we are supposed to find. We need to understand the data collection process. That's another thing. If you don't know the data collection process, you end up finding things or or even um implementing this data leakage I was talking before that should not be implemented. So you need to know what you need to know what you are doing on, on those data and how the data has been collected. And also you need to explain. Um, sometimes I mean it, it's useless to find the perfect model and not being able to explain how it works and why yeah. it's useful and what you know, so I think communication is an important part of our job actually it's a uh, a model that performs fantastically and stays in the lab is useless. Um, so yeah, I, I would better. say, maybe not everything, but I would say a 30% of our job is communication yes. easily but even yeah. maybe a 40% perfect. Um, yeah. And and as I said, I cannot be the exp- an expert on all domains. I cannot talk to doctors in hospitals. And at the same time, maybe the accountants. So it's, that's impossible. I need to talk to people.
1: Yeah, that's great. And that's the, I was taught that early on in my IT audit career. Um, the manager that I worked for said, like when you go in to talk to the Unix person versus the SAP person versus the database person, like I start most of those conversations with, there's no way I can be an expert in all of this. Like there's not a person in the world that's just an SAP expert. And so now we're looking at uh, various ERP systems, various OSs, various databases, and you act like I cannot be, it's impossible to be an expert in all of that. And so I might ask, I probably will ask, what you're gonna think is a dumb question, but it's coming from my audit perspective um, and so it makes sense and obviously, you know, kind of walk you through why we're asking that, et cetera. But um, absolutely, the importance of being the effective communicator is you can't be a domain expert in everything. So um, it's good to hear that you echo the, the same sentiment.
0: It is not a dumb question. It's absolutely key. And I think it's underestimated in our job. And then sometimes you end up to work, working with people. And it is so hard. It is yeah. so hard to get, uh, you know, the final explanation or the final uh, you know to get through the the the, import, the importance of whatever it is that they have been doing
1: yeah you think it's just yeah. about knowing the tool you know like we need somebody that knows how to use mm. this tool that's all we need and then it you realize that when you get that person that can't effectively communicate like we've been talking about there's a lot more to it than just that
0: and it's not only skills it's also to take the time um i mean i can communicate if i want but then of course i have to prepare i have to i have to take the time to uh, prepare uh, an effective communication so it i think it's it's a yeah at the end it's a philosophy the basis of the whole lab of the whole uh, group
1: yeah okay i did want to get into um some nine somewhat specific um questions and and one being and i say somewhat Specific because this idea of low code or no code um, is starting to make its way across. I think multiple multiple types of tools, and so um, within the analytics world, Nime is one of those tools. So uh, again, kind of two questions: What does no code, low code mean? And then, is it real in terms of is it as great as it seems that it would be? Uh,
0: okay, let's start from the no code, low code. Um, so. There are, uh, at the beginning, when I was young and I was doing my thesis, there was no choice. We had to program all algorithms. So you had to go, uh, it used to be C or C++. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am that old. Um, So, I mean, you had no choice. You had to do it all from the beginning, read the data and then lines and lines of code. And then somebody else would arrive and improve your code. So... Uh, more, more, and more lines of code from somebody else. less say uh, not many comments. So it was, it was something like that. Um, now um, a, a lot of data scientists use Python, um, but uh, Python is also code-based. It's a, it's script-based. It's not C or C++ anymore, but uh, um, still, it's still uh, uh, coding um, a script. So, uh, what do we do if uh, some people can't program or if they don't want to learn to program? I mean, a physician has a lot of stuff to do; doesn't need to learn how to program with Python. Or, uh, I mean, not everybody wants or can has the time to learn how to program. Um, so, in this case, then you can uh, resource to low-code tools. Uh, data science is one. Uh, field, but it can be many other fields. I mean, there are a lot of low-code. It's it's not a new thing. There are a lot of low-code tools that are popping up everywhere. And basically, they um, substitute uh, the coding uh, with some kind of visual programming. Visual programming are all these blocks that you drag and drop, and then you connect together. And then at the end, you get a pipeline of a data flow that takes your data from A to B. Uh, And that's... So this is... The difference. At the end they implement the same things, only that in one case you have a sequence of lines of code, in the other case you have a sequence of blocks. Um, the visual programming is uh, slightly, so it, it's, uh, it's different because it's more effective from a learning point of view if you don't want to learn how to code. Um, So, for example, there is a block that says, read a file, so you take that, you read the file, then you open it, and then it guides you through all the steps that you need to to read the file. Um, It would be the same in a script, you would have a function that reads the file and you have to fill the parameters, only that you have to know the parameters. So, they implement the same things, only that they use visual programming to do that with respect to classical traditional coding. Um, this is low code. No code uh, is another philosophy uh, for data science, especially. This refers to the fact that you can. Uh, so, I told you about the uh, creation cycle of a uh, machine learning model. Now, I say that it's always the same, whatever the model is. You have these parameters, and then you have these uh, automatic algorithms to fit the parameters. So, if it's always the same, can I make it automatic? Can I? You know, automatize the whole process. Right. And there are some tools that they say you can, you just throw the data in, and they do everything automatically, and then they spit some predictions out. Um, this is no code, so you don't, you don't have to do anything, you just feed the data, you get something out. You have to trust, of course, the box that is doing that, right. uh, and you have to trust that it's doing it properly. Um, so those are the two approaches. NiME is not no code. The no code is more like a auto, uh, automated machine learning. NiME we have a solution that can do that. We have implemented it, but we are definitely a low code tool. Right. So you can do the same that you can do with Python, only that instead of using code, you use uh, these blocks and you do this drag and drop to, be, to build the pipeline. Um, so this is the difference, low code, no code. Um, what was the second question?
1: <laughs> uh, well, the f- before that, well, the next question is, is it as good as it sounds? Um, but I I, I want to bounce this analogy off of you and let me know what you think. Relative to um, low code, I guess, I tell people it's kind of like a website designed today versus whatever, 20, 30 years ago. And so back then you had to know HTML and you had to type everything out and you had to go, look, I want this picture. I want it to go here and uh, it needs to be this size and uh and so you have to type all that stuff out
0: yeah i used to yeah
1: yeah and then now if you want to build a website it's low code drag and drop type stuff where you go i want this picture here on the website so i'm just going to drag it from my desktop to the um to the website builder and then there it is now i don't have to actually write any code when i dragged that onto the website the code kind of generated itself in the background So that's the kind of the analogy I take. um, And that's
0: exactly what it is. Yeah. And then you click on the pink and it becomes pink. That's exactly what it is. Before you had to write the hashtag and then CC or whatever the pink code was.
1: Yeah. That was just about the time. um, So like we had to do that as a project and then it was like hey this is kind of going away so you guys don't really need to know you know like a year later it's like we don't even need to know that anymore because because it all changed but um so okay so that was kind of my analogy uh the follow-up question was is it as real or as good as it sounds you know it sounds like or it's almost marketed as hey you don't have to know anything about tech just come in and drag and drop these things and you'll be good (laughs) to go
0: OK, so yeah, I get this question often. Um, so I always say, of course, we remove the barrier of coding. So you don't need to know how to code unless you want to do something complicated that is not available in nine, but you can do it in Python. But those are extreme situations. So you don't need how to code. But you still need to know what you're doing. Uh, That means you need to know a bit of the math behind uh, all the algorithms. If you apply a deep learning network and you want to train it and you want to change the parameters because deep learning networks can be uh, computationally expensive to train it can, it can take a long 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 time. So if uh, if you want to change the parameters as to uh, speed up the training or as to improve the training you still need to know what you are doing. So you need to know the theory that is behind the neural networks and the training algorithms of the neural networks. So we spare you the coding we don't spare you the math. This is. Um, um, yeah, pretty much That's what a great it is. Way to If you plug. do a clustering, you need to know how the clustering algorithm works to know how they get us they, the clusters get assembled together.
1: Hey everyone, thank you for continuing to listen to the show. We want to say thank you again to our sponsors over at Audit Board, the leading cloud-based platform transforming how enterprises manage risk. Audit board's integrated suite of easy to use audit, risk, and compliance solutions streamlines internal audit, SOX compliance, risk management, and security compliance. Automate processes and improve execution with Audit Board's purpose built solution, which is designed to address the most pressing challenges of today's practitioners. Experience the latest in audit, risk, and compliance technology. Visit auditboard.com to schedule your product walkthrough to see Audit Board's award winning platform in action today. You were going to talk about isolation forests as the example.
0: Okay, so about, um, so I'm not an expert of audit. Um, I did tell you that, uh, as I said, I am a data geek and uh, I am happy when the data uh, is already numbered or I, when I can transform the data into numbers. Um, so I'm not an expert of auditing. I don't know exactly what the auditing people uh, do. Um, some projects that, that I've been working on for auditing uh, is in fraud. So we did uh, some time ago, we did a fraud detection problem. Uh, I think the data set was on credit cards also because, uh, you know, I work in the evangelism group, so whenever we do something for our customers and we cannot publish because the data is privacy and so on and so on, so we always have to replace the data with some similar and publicly available data set and then we uh, rerun the the, the same task, the same use cases, but this time on some publicly available data set. So we did the fraud detection on the uh, data set provided by Kaggle. Uh, Those are uh, 28 principal components of customers, uh, of transactions, sorry, of credit credit card transactions. And uh, um, these 28 uh, principal components were supposed to be classified as, as fraud or not fraud. Uh, The problem with the frauds is that uh, the fraudsters are extremely good and they are ahead of us. So what happens is that, first of all, their fraud looks like like normal transactions. So so you can't distinguish them that well. And second of all, once you have um, identified the pattern that they use to perform the fraud, it's already too late because they have changed. So it's it, it's it's really hard to find a data set where you can have examples of legitimate transactions and examples of fraudulent transactions because the fraudulent transactions, if there are at all in there, there are only a few, they are hard to recognize and probably they are, out, they are outdated by now. Right. So it's a, yeah, it, it is a complicated problem, the one of the fraud because of the lack of data. So what we did there, um, we um, uh, So one possibility is to approach this problem from an outlier point of view. So you have all legitimate transactions. So you train whatever model on your legitimate transactions, and then if something deviates from these patterns of legitimate transactions, then you raise an alarm, and I don't know, you send an SMS or something to confirm that the transaction is legitimate or not. Um, so the whole uh, problem then moves from classif- classification to discover something that is not um, possible to classify. Um, the, the, um, so for this problem, we use a lot the outlier detection. Outlier detection can be implemented in many ways. You can do it with the distance, for example uh sorry with the um percentiles for example whatever falls out of the um uh, f- first and last quantile then you think that uh, might not be legitimate right. um another one is whatever falls in the very last part of the distribution of the gaussian distribution of the legitimate transactions then it's also a suspicious case um lately for example they use a lot of um the clustering algorithms. For example, if you use the DB scan, the DB scan has a, um, uh, so basically you start from a point and then you uh, assemble, you uh, assign the closer, closest points to the same cluster. Um, if you don't have closest points, then you stop, right? And there are some points, the outliers, that have nobody around; they have no other closer points, and then they get classified as outliers. These outliers are always the suspicious case in transactions. Right. So what we did, we didn't use any of those. Uh, so in, uh, sorry, another case is the isolation forest. You cut, um, you start from a data set, and you cut. Uh, um, uh, you try to isolate your data points. Uh, by cutting inside the data set. If you need a lot of cuts, that means that you have a lot of points around. If you need a few cuts, that means that this point is a lone point. And then if it's a lone point, it's classified as an outlier. So but what we did, uh, we used the autoencoder. It's a neural architecture. It's a simple neural architecture. doesn't require special neural units. Uh, It's trained with backpropagation, so classic feed forward backpropagation network, nothing special. Uh, The particularity of this uh, neural architecture is that it has as many input um, features as many output uh, units in the the output layer of the uh, neural network. So what we do, we train this neural autoencoder to reproduce uh, the um, input path onto the output layer. So I train my network to just reproduce whatever it sees on the input uh, layer onto the output layer. Simple. The key is that my training set is made only of legitimate transactions. So I can only feed my network with normal data. So during the training, then my network is going to learn to reproduce normal data from the input layer onto the output layer. Then during deployment, so when the network Uh, start working with real data, what I do, I measure the distance between the input layer and the output layer. If it's a legitimate transaction, the network has seen it during training and it's able to reproduce it faithfully enough. So the error between the input layer and the output layer is going to be small. If If it's an outlier or a suspicious case or even a fraud, then it's possible, it's more likely, then the network has never seen something like that, doesn't know how to reproduce it, and then it just uh, produces something at random. And then the distance between the output layer and the input layer is going to be much higher than for legitimate transactions. So based on this distance, then we can, uh, you can do a histogram, I don't know, but then you can define a distance. If you want to be very conservative, then the distance can be very small. If you want to be more tolerant i don't know it depends a bit on the use cases use case you're working on um then you can you can have a higher threshold but anyway if this means distance is above this given threshold then you fire an alarm and then if it's a credit card transaction for example you send the sms to the owner and then you ask him to confirm that what he's doing is legitimate
1: yeah i think that's a great example because i think a lot of people can relate to it i know i get the emails and i don't think i get text messages but i get emails saying hey we think this was a fraudulent transaction on the credit card are you aware of it yes or no um and so i think a lot of people are, are familiar with that so i really like that as the example um, and, and the
0: good thing is that it doesn't require examples of frauds it just requires example of legitimate transactions yeah. and it works the same also you know for Uh, electrocardiogram arrhythmia, uh, or things that you cannot collect enough examples of. Right,
1: so is there anything else you want to leave the audience with?
0: Um, Okay, of course you can check our website, uh, nime.com. You can download the tool, it's free, so you just download it and start using it. You can play with the blocks and build your pipelines. Uh, We have uh, um, a medium journal. Uh, It's low code for advanced data science. Um, So you can see what the community has been contributing in this journal. We also talking about the the theory behind um, and talking about the the pleasure that comes from explaining complex things to people. Um, So we have a series on YouTube. It's the Data Science Pronto series. it's a, each video is two minutes long maximum, so it's a, they're very, very short. We ask one question and we get the answer. So for example, um, when we do time series analysis, classic is not to use classic and accepted is not to use the R squared as a measure of uh, uh, success or failure of your model. Mm-hmm. Why? And nobody knows, but everybody uh, applies that. And so we have this little video that explains why. We have a whole series about that. So we have 13 videos uh, explaining small things, small best practices uh, in data science. Um, On February 23rd, we have the Data Connect Tech uh, USA series. Um, So if you want to participate, we are going to host a Learnathon. The Learnathon is a three hours, um, two hours, and then one hour networking, two hours um, learning tutorial. The tutorial uh, is divided in three groups. So we are going to have one group that is going to uh, learn about um, how to perform data transformation operations with nine. Another group is going to apply machine learning algorithms. And then another group is going to perform the deployment uh, for production of uh, existing models. Um, so February 23rd, I think it's 5 p.m. U.S. Central. You can register on any meetup.com. You search for the NIME uh, meetup group closest to you, and then you can register. They are free. Of course, everything is free
1: all and right. open to everybody. Perfect. And we'll we'll put links in the show notes for all those uh, resources. So, Rosario, thank you very much. That was very informative. Thank you. Especially, I think, for the audit community and... I think most I hope helpful. I wasn't
0: be- too boring.
1: No, 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 it was great. I think most helpful is going to be, especially those um, instances w- where it's, hey, we aren't using machine learning and in internal audit necessarily, but it's happening within our organization somewhere, and we need to understand what the risks are associated with that and the processes in yeah. general. So I think that was. I think you gave a fantastic background on Good. on machine learning. Um, and then again, with the resources that you offered, I think it's a really, really great place for people to start that haven't started yet. Hey everyone. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the audit podcast, whatever platform you're listening on right now, I'm sure there's a subscribe button somewhere. So please hit the subscribe button there. If you're listening through iTunes or Spotify, feel free to go give us that five-star rating. It only took me about 16 seconds to give myself a five-star review. And it really helps to get future guests to come on the show. So we'd really appreciate that. Lastly, be sure to check out the show notes and follow us on all our social media channels on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and on TikTok. Also, if interested, please sign up for our weekly newsletter from The Audit Podcast. Thank you all. Have a great one.